walking in the light is incompatible with worldly lust. Or to use Jesus' words, what fellowship is light with darkness? And so to specify it even further, what fellowship does sexual sin have with the light of purity? I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. We have been working our way through the book of Ephesians. We are in chapter 5, in the first part of chapter 5. Of course, we had a week break last week, and weren't you greatly blessed by a very practical message from the Scriptures last week? This week, we return to a study that we began regarding purity, biblical purity in the first part of Ephesians chapter 5, but of course, we always need to understand the context and the background when we, under, when we study the Scriptures, and that's especially true of Paul's writings and how he builds a foundation, and then he gives us practical living on the basis of that foundation. And you know the operative words in the first three chapters of, of the book or pertain to what God has done in Christ to secure us in the gospel, how he has, he has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and then we have unification and Jew and Gentile in Christ to God in Christ, and how we know in chapter 3 the mystery of the gospel in Christ and the love of God in Christ. And then in chapter 4, Paul begins this application portion by saying, therefore, on the, on the basis of all of this that we've discussed, you should walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Well, what is your calling? It's everything that all the gospel meditation in Christ in chapters 1 through 3, so it's a high calling. As you've been called to the height and glory of the gospel, so you should live gloriously We began this discussion last week of, or two weeks ago, of walking in love. He's going to continue to use this application or this practical imagery for us of walking, and he's going to do the same thing again in this morning's text. Chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us. Remember one of the analogies that I gave you is like chapters 1 through 3 is hiking the the heights of the New Testament as if they were the, the Alps of the New Testament theologically, and then chapters 4 through 6 is the descent, the walk home, how we live in this life until God takes us home. And Paul uses this terminology of walking. And he's going to give us another analogy of walking in our text this morning. And so let's read our text starting in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 
walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Reading this text made me think of, especially perhaps because we just celebrated Christmas together, but reading this text made me think of the Christmas Carol. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with you know the story of the Christmas Carol, um, and you know there's about a thousand movies made of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. The undeniable, indisputable best is the Muppets' Christmas Carol. All right, and um, and so I don't know what you know about the the Christmas Carol, but there's actually one moment in the books. There's one moment in the books that's not, not well represented in the movies. And it's when, it's when Scrooge is finished with his time with the ghost of Christmas past. So you remember the ghost of Christmas past? In the book, he is, he's, he's basically a child and he, and he floats around. Or it's, it's, very, it's very undefined actually what it is. Um, but in the book, it, it carries a cone. It carries a cone around. And when Scrooge is so fed up with the ghost of Christmas past, how many of you know what he does? He takes the cone and he puts it down over the ghost of the Christmas past and completely extinguishes the ghost. Now this is a foreshadowed event. Because remember when they first meet the ghost of Christmas past and Scrooge, Scrooge says, can you dim the light? Something to that effect. And the ghost says, would you be so quick to dim the light? And the reason I thought of that story, and it's a, it's a common scientific reality, that you realize for light to be overcome, it has to be put out. That light inherently outdoes darkness. And in this text... Paul, as he has already said, walk worthy of the gospel. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, walk in love. He's now going to say, walk in light. Verse 8, walk as children of light. And we understand that in the life that we live, the darkness of the culture in which we find ourselves... It does not put us out. Rather, we are intended to shine into it. Now, there's a very specific darkness that Paul is referring to in this text. There's a very specific darkness. So it's not just the general darkness of sin. It is actually the specific darkness of the sexual sin that he's talked about in beginning in verse 3. So I'm going to read starting in verse 3 down to our text so you have the context. But sexual immorality and all impurity impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you 
may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So the specific darkness, the specific sin that Paul addresses in verses 6 to 14 is the sexual sin in verses 3 to 5. And so understanding these concepts of the context in verses 3 to 5, the specific darkness, and the concept that we've already introduced that we are to be the light that outdoes the darkness, I'm going to show you this morning from this passage that walking in light is incompatible with worldly lust. Walking in the light is incompatible with worldly lust. Or to use Jesus' words, what fellowship is light with darkness? And so to specify it even further, what fellowship does sexual sin have with the light of purity? Now, if you note this morning, I have given you an advantage that I don't usually give you in the preaching time. I don't usually give you my outline, but there's a little, there's a little brochure there. There's a little handout in your bulletin. So if you didn't grab that, if you didn't get one, you can get one on the way out. And the reason I've done that, now there's the ruffling of pages, yeah, okay, here we go. You're, you're finding it. The reason I've done that is because the structure this morning, the outline, is actually fairly complex. It's, you know, it's one of those things that it's complex, but it's also simple if you see it the right way, if you understand it the right way. And so I didn't want you to spend a lot of time taking notes in the outline. I wanted you to be able to follow along. So there should be a little handout there, and, it's, uh, and it has the entirety of the outline. And you will note that there are two recurring words. What are they? Imperative and impetus. So the imperative is the command, and the impetus is the reason for that command. There are multiple of those combinations of imperatives and impetus for that imperative in the text this morning. What Paul is going to do is he's going to give us a command, and then almost every time he's going to say, for... And he's going to give us the reason. So to put this in our vernacular, right now, if I tell my child to do something, I give them a command. And I do the best that I can to also give them a reason. I don't always give them a reason. They should obey with a reason or not. But parents, we should have reasons for what we tell them and don't tell them to do. I mean, let's be intentional. But you, you know what I'm saying. You, you get where I'm... So, so if I say, get your shoes on, son, it is not because I think he looks really good in his shoes. Though he, depending on what shoes Leighton is wearing, he really likes, you know, if, especially if they're the superhero ones, right? It is because we are trying to go somewhere. Imperative, put on your shoes. Impetus, we are trying to get out the door right? You understand this. This is what Paul does constantly throughout the book. It's actually throughout the text we studied this morning. It's actually what he's been doing throughout the duration of the book. He's giving us instruction now in chapters 4 through 6 on the basis of the impetus of chapters 1 through 3. But now he's going to kind of consolidate this logic and this reasoning and this tactic all into one passage. So I'll show you what it means as we go along. So I have given you the imperative, and I've given you the impetus in, in the entirety of the outline there that you have in that handout. That's so that you can just kind of follow along. The PowerPoint will also be structured that way this morning as well. 
So let's deal with imperative and impetus number one. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The imperative here is do not be deceived. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And then he's going to give us the reason. And this is how you note the structure with me. You'll see this throughout this this text. Do not be deceived. And what's the next word? With empty words. What's the next word? For. So here's the reason. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So imperative, do not be deceived. Impetus, the wrath of God is coming. So let's work through this together. When he says, let no one deceive you, the, there, are, there are primarily two views here. One view is that he is dealing with a, 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 an ancient philosophical worldview called Gnosticism. And, and the way that they viewed life is they actually, they actually detached what they did physically from who they were religiously. In other words, they could have religious lives and they could still want to do what they wanted to do physically. I do not think that is what Paul is getting at. Uh, he addresses that elsewhere in Colossians and he's much more specific. I think if that's what he were doing, it would be more evident. The other reason that I think that's not what he's talking about is because, remember, this whole text is set up in chapter 5, verse 3, and he's talking about relationships in the saints. Look what he says in verse 3. It must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So I believe we're talking about believers in the context of the church. Therefore, when he says, let no one deceive you, I think he's talking about professing Christians, professing Christ followers, or those who would say that they are saints. In other words, don't be deceived by people who are trying to follow Christ and claim that they are a saint and still follow after sexual sin and accept things that are sexually inappropriate that the culture may say is acceptable. Let no one deceive you with vain or empty words, and the impetus is the wrath of God. You say, well, you could ask the question, or you could ask the question, are the saints really deceiving people about these things? Or I'm going to say professing saints. Because Paul has already made it clear, you cannot characteristically live a life of sexual sin. Listen, you cannot characteristically. That is, that is it is your habit, you have, you have no guilt, your conscience doesn't affect you. You cannot characteristically live a life of sexual sin and claim the name of Jesus Christ. I did not say you don't slip up. We slip up. I mean, people slip up all the time in their thoughts, maybe through adultery, maybe through the internet. But believers who slip up realize they slipped up, realize it was sin, understand the gravity of it, and desire to change. So when he says, don't be deceived by these people, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this term a lot, Christians or saints, because I don't think they're actually true believers who live a life, whatever they want to do sexually, and still claim the name of Christ. So are believers being deceived? He says, let no one deceive you. You would think, listen, you would think that Paul would be able to assume 
that those who live lives of impurity, sexual immorality, covetous, remember that word sexual immorality is porneia, the, the, ancient, the ancient word porneia has the idea of any sexual inappropriateness outside of what God has intended. And what has God intended? God has intended the, pu- the purity and the beauty of marriage to be preserved and protected and enjoyed. And so any kind of sexual inappropriateness outside of what God has intended. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. You would think that Paul wouldn't have to say, let those people, make sure those people don't deceive you. Because you would think that it's human nature to understand, I can't please Christ and constantly please my flesh and have both at the same time. So are believers being deceived? Well, my friends, about f- this is, um, these are from the most recent Barna and Pew statistics that I could gather. I don't have many. I just think I have the most telling ones. About 50%, it's about 49.6, of evangelical Christians believe that there is a place for consensual sexual relations outside of marriage. Should I read that again? Did we get it the first time? You say, well, that must be nominal Christians. It is largely nominal Christians. And by the way, I'm hesitant to call anybody nominal actually a Christian. There's no category in the New Testament for nominal Christians. There's unbelievers and there's active believers. Okay? You say, well, what about their theology? Out of that 50%, 45% of them claim to be Protestant in their theology. This was a 2020 Pew statistic. 54% of Christians believe homosexuality should be supported. Christians. You say, well, that's just all the young people, right? The two greatest age demographics within those numbers are Gen X and baby boomers. What about pornography? Nominal Protestant pornography viewership isn't much different than the national average. The national average of men, which by the way, it's always men who are researched here, but um, the increase in female viewership of pornography is rampant and substantial. The national average of porn viewership amongst men that is, they were accounting for one glimpse of pornography per month is 64% in the United States. Evangelical or Protestant Christian men come in at about 55%. There's good news within some of these statistics. General social survey, so this is another survey group, shows that about one-fifth of that 55% is made up of truly committed believing men. That's the term they use, committed believing men. So actually even secular researchers researchers understand the difference between those who would call themselves committed and those who would be nominal. Do you know how they define commitment? This is interesting church attendance 
Even secular sources understand that attendance to church is fundamentally an aspect of commitment. They defined commitment to attendance by more than one time weekly. Listen, there are Christians who even question if commitment or if attendance is a valid measuring stick for commitment. The world understands it. So the social survey group says within that 55%, about one-fifth is actually made up of truly committed believing men. So the percentage is much smaller to those who are actually taking steps in their spiritual life. It's not all good news. Because while that's better news, that one-fifth has actually grown in proportion to the last three years to the national average. So it's a much smaller number, but it's a growing number with the national average as well. So my friends, are Christians being deceived? Yes, they are. They say, well, how did we get here? Stop going to church? A low view of the pulpit? Lack of submission to God's word? You say, well, it's more available. We'll we'll talk about that. Let's talk about it right now. I'm going to talk to the parents for just a second. Teens, you might be mad at me, but it's okay. You'll forgive me one day. I, um, I carry a firearm most of the time. I don't do it at church. We have a security team for that. I carry a firearm most of the time. My holster has a place for my, obviously, my firearm, and it has a place for an extra mag. A few weeks ago, I picked up my son, and I do something I often do, and I put him over my back, and I was carrying him around by his feet. And when I pulled him back over, he says, Daddy, what's this? And he's got my extra magazine. (laughs) Didn't even think about it. I'm thankful it was the magazine, right? Now, you know, my my gun wasn't loaded, so he would have had a process, but my son's three. He doesn't understand that danger. He doesn't understand the potential for that damage. Your teenager does not understand the danger behind the screen. They don't. And teenagers, I'm not speaking down to you. I'm not. I just know a little bit more of life and so do your parents. And I've struggled with a little bit more things than so have your parents. And the average parent gives their kid a loaded gun and says, have fun. So get filters, get accountability. If they go to bed at 10 o'clock, the phone is in the kitchen at 9.30. They don't get to take it to bed with them. Whatever you need to do in your home to take the gun away, at least until they know how to work the safety. Do what you need to do. Because porn used to be something you had to seek. Now it comes after you.
Focus on the Family has an anonymous hotline for pastors who are addicted to pornography. It's ruining marriages. It's destroying homes. The strength of your marriage is reflected in private virtue as well. Men, let me tell you this right now. If you're struggling, you're not the only one, and you need to talk to somebody. Ladies, if you're struggling, you're not the only one, and you need to talk to somebody. Teenagers, talk about it now. And when mom and dad ask for your phone and ask to put a filter on it and want to check your text messages and want to text, find your pictures, do not fight them. It's love. Because obedience is safe. Purity is protection. Do you know how I know this? Read the next few words. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. I'm not just here. I mean, I, I prepared to say, I prayed through this. I'm not just here to like, create restrictions and sound all judgment. I just know the lives that are in ruin. And I love you. And if I didn't love you, I wouldn't warn you. Teenagers, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell your parents to check in on your phone. We'd let you do whatever you want to do without accountability. True love causes protection. And do you know what we want? We want you to know perfect and joyous relationship and communion with God. Because we know that the only thing that will get you through this life is his peace and his joy, and the security of the gospel, and the hope that is in Christ, and the pleasure that is in Christ. And the world promises us that we can buy cheap, plastic entertainment, and that bodies are just for looking at, and to be monetized, and objectified, And we know that what God has intended, what we know from the scriptures, that what God has intended is pure and right. And there are sins that bring inherent consequences that are different than other consequences. I'm not trying to be all just dark, doom and gloom here, but you know, if, if you want to just do a case study on what the wrath of God looks like in over-sexualized cultures, just study history. Just study history. Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Sodom, Rome, Greece. 
Study history. The wrath of God comes upon peoples of sexual rebellion. You say, well, what, I mean, what do we, what do we do with all this then? We'll get there. So this is so heavy. I, I didn't come here for this. You know, and I, just as your pastor, you know the times when it's been a really tough week and we've done funerals and we've had lots of grief and we've had that for weeks now. And I know I've got to preach a message like this. There's a human part of me that wants to change it. But I trust that God's wisdom and God's spirit knows that we're where he wants us to be at the right time because that's what happens when you just work through the word. So we need this somehow. Therefore, imperative and impetus, do not be partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You say, this is so heavy, this is so dark. Yes, but there's a flicker, isn't there? Do not be partners with them. If you were, this is what you've been saved out of. Don't become participants. Don't become partakers. So imperative and impetus number two, imperative, do not partake. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And impetus or the reason you were darkness and now you're light, do not become partners with them. Flip back to chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Why would you become partners in sin when you have been made partners in Christ? What can partaking in the world or partnering in the world's sin possibly offer you that Christ in unity and the glory of the gospel cannot satisfy? Nothing. You've been made partners in light and in Hope, why would you join each other in sin? Every pastor who stands up before a massive congregation and accommodates the world's view of sexuality is calling you back to darkness. When we have been called to be partakers in light in the Lord. And I love this. You were darkness. Not only did you live in darkness, this was who you are. Your identity apart from Jesus is darkness. This morning I had to wrap up a few things in my office and so I was actually in there during the beginning of Sunday school and so as to not to interrupt this class I went through the back, you know, hidden passages, ways of Grace Bible Church and, and, and I was headed down the steps and the steps were dark and I, and I was feeling around and hobbling because if you fought on these stairs you might die. I mean I don't know if you've been back there. But it's dangerous back there man. And so I grabbed the steps and, and hobbled around. Why? Because darkness isn't safe inherently. Separation from Christ is the ultimate danger. Darkness, spiritually, is the most dangerous 
unsafely. But you are light in the Lord. It's not, listen, it's not that, like, as you get saved, you know, you've got this dimming switch and Jesus turns up the light. Oh, he's doing great now. We've got the, we've got the, we've got the light up and now he's doing it. You are light. This is who you are. But you might dim the light of your impact. Imperative and impetus number three. Walk as children of light. So you are light, so now you need to walk as children of light. Not just walk in the light, but walk as children of the light. J Paul is using this terminology of light as synonymous with salvation. The gospel, I mean, the, the, just think about the New Testament writers. What's the first thing John does when he introduces us to Jesus Christ? He's the word and he's the light of life. And in him was the light of life. What's the prophet tell us back in Isaiah chapter 9 about the, about the servant to come? He's going to shine light into the darkness. On them, the true people, a light has dawned. And so Paul is just using this, this very commonly understood, biblically grounded image of light. It's not just Christ who is the light. He has shined his light into your heart and transformed you. And now you are flickers of the light of Christ. So walk as children of light. It's so simple what he's doing. There's no like hidden deep mystery of what it means to walk as the children of light. Just don't do darkness. What darkness? Verses 3 through 5, sexual sin, sexual impurity. And now Paul's going to mix metaphors a little bit. The imperative is walk as children of light in verses 8 through 10. And the impetus is for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So he mixes metaphors. We've got, we've got the light and now we've got the fruit of light or the display or the outgrowth of that light. And what happens when you walk as children of light? It's everything that is good in contrast to what is inappropriate. It is everything that is True, in contrast to what is deceptive, do not be deceived. And it is right, everything that is completely antithetical to living out filthiness and foolish talking and crude joking, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Which, by the way, just a, a quick note on verse 5 there, because we're going to get back to it. He's going to say, don't talk about these things. They're not right to be named. When he says... No foolish talking or crude joking, let there be thanksgiving. He's actually using a very intentional word picture there in verse 5. The sin that he talks about is the Greek word eutropalia. And then he says, but instead thanksgiving, eucharistia. The giving of thanks. So, the question is not, are you shining? The question is, how brightly? Sexual sin will dim the light of your impact.
we're going to be done here this morning. We'll pick this up next week. My friend, I want to encourage you just with a few things. I know this is heavy, wrath of God. You know, the teens are going to say I took away their phones or whatever. That's fine. But my friend, listen. We live in a world where it feels like the darkness really is closing in. The world looks darker every day. And I know teens, I sound like an old guy, right? Just doom and gloom. And, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to balance that a little bit. In him was the light of life. And the darkness has not overcome it. And my friend, what the world offers you in darkness, Christ provides in complete fulfillment in light. You say, but I've messed up. The light of Christ outshines the darkness of a past. It outshines the darkness of a present. You say, well, I'm, I'm caught right now. I was caught then. I've sent those pictures. I've sent that text message. I've clicked on that thing. I've done this in this place with this person. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And in that moment, what seemed like the darkest time in human history, I mean, literally, it was dark. The sun was extinguished, and the Son of God is suffering for all of mankind. That sin, that text, that image on the screen, that thing you did that you don't want anyone to know about was accounted for, and the light of Christ has overcome it. And so now leave the darkness behind, my friend, and walk in light. Don't live in the danger, searching around and seeking around for the next thing that might please you. It won't be what the world offers in darkness. It is what Christ delivers in light.